I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast. That is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc. Now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now, I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm, and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend Foundations, where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology, knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders in shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, this is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. 
Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker, and what makes me smile is before I even started my podcast seven years ago, when listening to other wellness conversations, Inside Tracker was always the company they recommended for comprehensive blood work. Well, now in 2024, they have begun to offer a brand new first responder panel, which will cover nine biomarkers hitting several of the pillars of health that affect us in uniform, stress, heart health, metabolism, and gut health. Now, after a very simple intake form, a blood draw, you will get the results sent to your computer, smartwatch, phone, not only detailing where you are on the scale from poor to optimized, but also tips on how you can improve each of these markers. Now, this panel is usually $310, but they are also offering first responders 30% off any of their blood panels. So that brings this specific panel down to only $217. Now, I myself went through their ultimate, which is their comprehensive blood work, which also includes micronutrients, hormones, and other areas of overall health. And I have to say, I was absolutely amazed at firstly how easy it was, but secondly, the comprehensive information I got and the actionable information on how to improve each of my own biomarkers. Now, as with all my sponsors, if you want to hear more about Inside Tracker, you can hear my conversation with senior sales executive Jonathan Levitt on episode 887 of the Behind the Shield podcast. So to sign up or simply learn more, go to insidetracker.com. And for the first responder panel, the easiest way is to Google Inside Tracker first responder panel. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show world record-holding strength athlete and doctor of physiotherapy, Andrew Locke. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from training the youth athlete, body dysmorphia, the world of shoulder injuries, the power of exercise to rehabilitate, back pain, Dr. Stuart McGill's work, MMA, tactical athletes and so much more now before we get to this incredible conversation as i say every week please just take a moment go to whichever app you listen to this on subscribe to the show leave feedback and leave a rating every single five star rating truly does elevate this podcast therefore making it easier for others to find and this is a free library of almost 900 episodes So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dr. Andrew Locke. Enjoy.
Well, Andrew, I want to start by saying thank you so much for waking up in your morning in Australia and jumping on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, it's a total pleasure. It's always good to get up early in Melbourne and get things done. So it works for me to see everyone else in the world is enjoying the sun and the fun that we're not, even though it's supposed to be summer here. <laughs> it's Melbourne. I absolutely love Melbourne. I When I was in Australia, I lived there for... God, how long it was like three months? I lived on Manly for most of it in Sydney. Um, a better place to be, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't bad, I got to say. But um, we, I forget what we were flying. I think we were going into Melbourne, and my girlfriend at the time and I hadn't figured out anywhere to stay yet. And um, the stewardess, that was actually the hostess, that was one of you know the people taking care of us on the plane, ended up taking us. Like she met us after she got off the plane, and then drove us to one of the hostels there. So amazing Fair. people in Melbourne. It's a beautiful place to be when you land over there in Sydney as well. That's the Manly Beach. Man, that's the real Australia I do enjoy. But then again, I prefer Miami. I prefer, <laughs> San, Di- I prefer San Diego. Yeah, I do, I, like- tra- I do that travel, so they're places I get to. And you're in England, huh? Uh, no, I'm no, I'm just north of Miami. I'm in Ocala, Florida, yeah. just above uh, Orlando. Fantastic. Uh, great place. Yeah, we went up to Orlando last year because um, one of my friends is a WWE wrestler and we went up and saw one of the tapings and had a bit of fun. Brilliant. Yeah, Florida is actually the home of wrestling. There's a lot of wrestling mm. camps here. It always has been. It's a good place. So the action the action is on there. What are you doing over in um, up there these days? Uh, this. Yeah, I transitioned out of the fire service five years ago now, almost five and a half years ago, um, after seeing the mental and physical ill health of my brothers and sisters in uniform. So yeah. I was kind of a force multiplier element. I realized I was doing more good focusing on this full time than running one call at a time, which I loved doing for 14 years. But uh, it was kind of one of those, you know, life shifts where you kind of take a leap of faith and try and do something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. As we say, you got to go all in, don't you? Huh? Absolutely. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your life before we talk about me too much. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Well, the fun part of it is uh, my dear girl, we're getting married in Miami actually in, on September the 7th, okay? So we're coming out over there. We've got our wonderful friend Mike, that battle axe Jim, who's going to be the um, marriage celebrant and uh, my good friend Carlos is going to be the best man. He comes over from LA. He runs a gym, the El Luchador gym. Now, for me, my girl always says to me, why aren't you fucked up? Because you had the most perfect freaking childhood anyone's ever had. That's why. I couldn't have a better childhood. I've got everything. I was a fourth child in, a, in the family. I was not supposed to be there. I was nine years after my brother. My father honestly said straight up to me, you're not supposed to hear, be here. The condom broke. So you're a lucky bastard, and that's basically straight up fact. They thought I was my sister's daughter, my sister's child when they went on holiday because she's 18 years older than me. So we really had a perfect family dynamic where my parents would be worn in by the other three kids. So when it got to me, I just lived the perfect life. I used to stay out all day and all night playing sport. I was obsessed with cricket. Um, my parents took my football boots away from me and said, you can't play football because you'll hurt somebody, you're too big. And they made me play baseball. Next thing you know, I end up playing for Australia in the juniors. In the, I played in the Junior World Series in uh, Nurk, Ohio. There we are. So I was always figured I was going to be a pro athlete. 
And then I made the mistake of seeing Arnold Schwarzenegger on a magazine. Um, got some wonderful body image dysmorphia. So I became a guy who only ever saw himself as freaking small. And that has taken me forever to even get close to managing. So I use the disorder, which is a body image disorder, which is I see myself as small every day when I wake up until about now. And I drove that into the weight training world. So instead of being a pro baseball player, I decided I was going to be a pro bodybuilder and that never worked. So being bright enough to get into university, I pursued a career in physiotherapy, mainly because from about the age of 12, I used to see um, physiotherapists for the various aches and pains that came from being a junior athlete. The useful thing, useful background, thought they'd be a good profession, went into it. As I was coming through, I decided to become a professional wrestler and join the WWE or as it was going to be, or WWF back then, um, and got delightfully spectacularly injured by doing a dumb thing in the gym. All right, well, at least I've still got my physical therapy to pursue, so I was at university and basically went through and still had the dream of following the wrestling career, but the injury itself was significant enough that I knew I wouldn't be able to do what I'd have to do. So there came the reason I ended up doing physical therapy instead of you seeing me playing at Yankee Stadium or in the um, centre ring. Now, what happens is I graduate and I'm at a sports medicine centre and they took me on at sports medicine centre straight out of university because I knew how to play baseball. And they needed someone who knew how to throw for rehabilitation. Well, when you went to sports medicine back there, their idea of sports medicine was mm, perhaps you play cricket, uh, maybe basketball, rode a bike, uh, went for a run, but no one had a clue about weight training. So I was lucky enough that I was on this absolute spear tip when I came out that here I was involved in the weight training world and I'm in a sports medicine place that's supposedly the best in the world at shoulders and I found out none of them even knew what a bench press was and what's going to come in the door for me because people knew me, bench press shoulders. So I really started developing the rehabilitation for weight training injured athletes. And of course... When you get people who get injured weight training, you get people who get injured during their vocations, you end up with a lot of military and a lot of um, law enforcement and fire. And so that's a relationship that I've had for quite a long time. And um, about two years ago, started a relationship with the Australian Army where I was fortunate enough to go out onto base and work with the PTIs. And it was really great. Such a dedicated group to work with and Amusingly, they bought a lot of reverse hypers and they wondered why the reverse hyper didn't work for everybody. And I was able to explain that. We'll put that in the story today. So that was a, um, a very quick summary of really where, I, where I've been and where I am now. So essentially, I was a shoulder guy. But I figured the shoulder solutions that nobody had seen because I had to figure out what happens to people under load. Not just your swimmers, not just your basketball players. I had to deal with people who were getting injuries in fairly heavy vocations and weight training. Well, because I injured my back delightfully enough that when the, when the surgeon had a look at the MRI that I had from the injury, he basically brought a tissue out and started to wipe it, thinking somebody had sneezed on the thing. Dude, nobody sneezed on it. That was the crap that exploded out of my disc. I really did it. I did probably one of the best disc injuries I've ever seen in my career, and that's getting on to 30 years now. So I couldn't walk for two years at least. 
in any way, shape or form correctly. So there I am. I've got this wonderful back injury, but I can't take time off to have surgery, so it ain't going to happen. And I had to persist through learning about back problems. Now, when I had it, I said to the lecturer who had, um, when I finished and graduated, what I've got has not been described in what we've done. He said, man, we couldn't tell you everything. I can pretty much tell you now that the university education doesn't tell you anything. It's deteriorated to such a point that the graduates now are coming out with um, thinking that nothing works. They've been told that nothing works and they sit there and talk to you like they're half-assed psychologists and they're supposed to be physical therapists and um, movement scientists. Well, I was lucky enough that here I am with the weight training world. I know science exists. I know physics works. I know biology exists. I know that if you take a biological tissue beyond its fatigue or load capacity, you're going to get an injury. It's not in your head. It's a freaking physical injury. Now, the personal experience of pain, that's a subjective thing. But there's more than likely you've got a biological trigger. And who knows how to find that? Well, that's what takes you only about 25 years to figure out and be really damn good at. So, yes, if I look at, um, you know, somebody asked me the question the other day, after a disc injury, can you ever come back to a top level? And the fact is, if you injure a disc, I'll, make, I'll bring up one of my little Chinese models, okay? This is, a, this is a little crap one, all right? If you go and give yourself a nice disc injury, there's a nice disc bulge. You got one? Everyone love that one? Once you've done that to the wall of the annulus, the outer part of the disc, your disc will never be the same ever again. It will never return to its previous state. But does that mean that you can't perform at the highest level? Absolutely not. We can look at the case of Brian Carroll. He's a guy in 2009, one of the great powerlifters of our time, and he suffered a huge injury, massive disc problems, and he also fractured his spine as well. Well, 2020, Brian breaks a world record with the world's greatest squat of all time, 1,306 pounds. Can you return after injury? Yeah, of course you can. But you need to find someone who knows how to take you there. So although the disc never recovers to its previous state, does that really overly matter? So when I blew my disc up, and we're looking well back over 20 plus years, I don't have a disc left at all. It's bone on bone. There is no disc left. The two bones have now fused themselves naturally over those years. Well, the only difference is I'm just about you know a centimetre shorter than I used to be. That's about all. I can do anything I need. So there doesn't have to be a relationship between the degeneration and your performance. Well, that's where I've got to take you. So there's a bit of a summary of my life. I went into learning about myself, being the best test pilot for it. Went through postgraduate education with the McKenzie Spinal Group. Learned from uh, Professor Stuart McGill. Spent some great time at his house. Got a great relationship with him. And I had to develop my own work. So I'm a clinician, not an academic. I've written some research papers. But realistically, I'm a clinician who has to apply reality to a human being. I don't sit behind a desk and say, oh, this is what the data says. Mate, I don't care what your data says. Can you apply that into a human being? That's what matters. So jumping on the education side for a second, there's so many parallels. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I had a near career-ending back injury, and I want to get into that because I healed that with movement as well. But before we even mm -hmm. dive into that, I did exercise physiology and, God, what was it called? movement studies i forget even what it was called now but it was a two-year degree in the university of north london and then mm -hmm. finished my bachelor's in exercise physiology in the university of florida here in gainesville 
met some great people, had some great teachers, but overall, UK and US, when I came out the back door, I really didn't feel like I had any skills to apply to the real world. And the only semester I thought was phenomenal was there was one that actually did you prepare you for the NSCA CSCS. So at least then you had mm. a piece of paper that you could walk away. So I've been very um, disillusioned with higher education because, again, I paid money. I have <laughs> loans. You know, I put my, my time and this was while I was a firefighter into it. <laughs> but my observation, and I've asked, you know, people, you know, Matt Wenning and um, Jeff Nichols and a lot of these people that have come on the show that, are, that have both. They have the pieces of paper and they have the experience. And it seems like a lot of people um, feel the same. Like we're not doing a good job preparing our young men and women that want to go into athletic training, into you know physical therapy, all these elements for the real world application. So talk to me about that. It's a total corruption of the system. The universities are... Basically now, because it used to be, I think when I came through essentially too, I was fortunate, the universities were institutions of higher learning that were supported by the governments. So you went there and the pressure wasn't on the university to have to fund itself. That all changed. Now the universities have to fund themselves. Well, shit, that means they've got to fund their own research. And then you end up just getting academics who are sitting in their chairs applying for grants to, as far as I can see, to bodies that are run by other people who have no other jobs than sitting on their ass, and they publish research papers, and the research journals are full of corruption. I've seen some of the highest level journals, you can call that the Lancet, you can talk about any of those, and the stuff they publish can be absolute rubbish. Now, it costs a lot of money to get it published, by the way. You could be looking at you know, $10,000 in the highest journals to apply, but it doesn't mean it's going to be good. They're only going to publish what suits their agenda as well. So, yes, the academic world is now just full of realistically papers that you can get published in low-volume journals or low-cost journals, or you can go high journal. And all that means is you're getting it funded by somebody else because you're not going to pay $10,000 yourself to get it put up there. So the universities basically take people in, spit them out, and then they said, ah, oh, the chiropractors are calling themselves doctors these days. Perhaps we'll call the physical therapists doctors. Yeah, let's do that. Let's add another year and another $60,000 to their price tag. Did you teach them anything better? No. And that's realistically it. It's universities are just really money-making machines. Do not ever expect to do a degree and come out with the answers you will need to look after real human beings. You've got to go do that in the clinic. And if you're a weight training individual, you've got a huge advantage because you know technique matters. You know that load has to be managed. Well, you don't learn that in your degrees, how to apply that to an injured human being. There's my summary of the university system. It's simply, hey, pay for your degree, you get a degree and come out and guess what? It's time for you to start learning. Or you don't have to learn. You can go get a job in, a, in the NHS or somewhere else and let the government supply you with people. I think the problem that I have, there is so little research when it comes to wellness in the fire service. There is research on flow patterns and ventilation, and there'll be some thrown at cancer, for example. But when it comes to, you know, looking at, and we'll get into this, you know, sleep and shift work and, you know, the importance of strength and conditioning when it comes to longevity and performance, et cetera, et cetera. There really isn't. And the stuff that's in there is very myopic. Oh, you know, we look, we, we took, you know, 
10 guys and we studied them for a week and it's it's looking at these minute slivers of detail and it's not really replicating what we do and then to to counter that the people in the profession go oh we need to see peer-reviewed research like for example i'm trying to get the <laughs> the work week reduced because our men and women in, in america are working 56 hour weeks not sleeping every third day and mm. then I'm, I'm trying to get it to where it's a 24 72 so they would be down to a 42 hour work week so an extra 24 hours off in between their shifts where they're up 24 hours straight and you know i get asked oh can you show me the research and there's a certain point where you're like, where, where have we lost common sense? Do so you need me to show you papers that a 56-hour work week is more detrimental than a 24, excuse me, a 42? So this is the problem I have too, is people are almost so brainwashed about peer-reviewed studies that they've kind of become disconnected from areas that don't need to be studied because it's fucking common sense. Hey, you got a great one there. And I bet when you're at university, you're told you cannot quote a research paper that's probably over five years old because it's old research. And you can't quote anything over 10 years old. Now, why is that? Because that's called recency bias, which means you've just made a decision on time, but not on the value of the science. So guess where all the great studies on spines exist? The real studies about these things here, the real studies here, you wanna start about the 1980s. And there's a lot of great work for the next 20 years, 1980s to 2000 that are solid and they show the biological facts about how the human body behaves under loads and what the mechanism of injury is. Then you're gonna get the recent new grads who are told by the university lecturers who also are publishing their own crap that there is no evidence. Oh yes, there is, but you can't quote it because it was done 1980, 1990 and 2000. They're being told you can't look at old research. Well, the old stuff's like, shit, Copernicus proved that the um, Earth revolves around the sun. But you know, he better not quote him because, you know what, he's old. So guess what? That's why we're seeing a lot of flat earthers these days. Because everyone's saying, oh, the government's lying to us and stuff like that. There's this huge situations that occurred, which is ignoring reality that exists. So this structure here, it's so well studied. And I can tell you straight up that if you read the research which has been published over the last... 20 years, the last 40 years, you'll understand that if you want to get a disc injury, it's flexing the spine under load beyond its capacity. That produces a disc bulge that direction with enough load, frequency, and tolerance. You want to fracture the back of your spine? Well, try landing from a large height with a backpack on and you're going to load your back into extension. Welcome to back fracture. Look at Blaine Sumner, one of the greatest lifters of all time, 515 kilograms squat. Walked it out, stumbled slightly, recovered, perfect squat, world record. You know what? He fractured his spine when he stumbled because he went into a little bit of extension. We don't need somebody saying, what's your, what's your studies on populations? We can look at the science that says, well, that's how he did it. And we can prove it. It's straightforward. So we should be returning back to what are the basics of how we get injured and now how do we solve that problem? And those things are well understood by people who have had to leave the university system essentially and go into private practice and clinical work who are bothered to take themselves into higher, into postgraduate work, usually by private institutions. So yes, the answers are always there. I love the way you talk about sleep. So one of my great athletes is a guy called Vasa. Vasa Samatua, right? Now, he's going to be competing in about seven weeks. Vasa's a guy who squats 400 kilograms, 
But he works two jobs pretty much in security. And as he gets bigger, he finds he has more problems to sleep. Smokes a pack of cigarettes a night, probably. So he goes to training after doing his shifts, no sleep, running after the family. And he's out there. He's going to, he'll be, he was the last winner we had at one of the big comps here. Yeah, you're going to have a 400 kilogram plus squat and deadlift in that individual. But he's surviving on maybe I sleep every two days. So there's a point where he's going to, he's going to break, isn't there? <laughs> no one's found it yet. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had Dr. McGill on the show. It was a little while ago now. It was a great conversation. And when it comes to the sleep deprivation element, I mean, anywhere from long-term diseases, you know, from suicide ideation and addiction all the way through to cancers and obesity, you look at the disruption of the hormones from sleep deprivation, you know, it's everything. But he was looking at it from a musculoskeletal point of view because I was telling him a lot of the guys that, men and women that take their job really seriously you know are working out despite the environment they're working in um mm. you know a lot of times we'll get hurt and they'll you know they'll be, we'll be laughed at by the the guys in the lazy boy that are you know 100 pounds overweight saying oh it's always the fit guys and it's like yeah it is because if you train and you don't sleep for 24 hours every third day it's only a matter of time you know there's not enough time for the the rebuild after the the breakdown so eventually we do break and there's so many factors there, isn't it? Who can handle this? Whose system can actually be so optimal that they can handle a minimal amount of sleep and somebody else just can't? So there's that human factor about recovery, which is very, very large and important as well. So we always evaluate the human on the individual basis, not just on what the research says. And Stu McGill's great one on firefighters there. He did a study with Scanlon and somebody else down in Florida, Pensacola Fire Department. He proved pretty conclusively that an exercise doesn't transfer to performance unless you show, body, so, show somebody how that relates to the performance in their task, such as firefighters. Teaching them a deadlift doesn't come out when they go back to the job unless you show them that's the technique and this is how it applies to lifting, and then it works. So, yeah, this transfer of skill is imperative. Just because you're lifting weights doesn't make you resilient at work. Absolutely. Well, you're holding a spine at the moment, so I just want to take a turn. I heard you on a podcast, and I, I, I'm scolding myself because I forgot to write it down. I believe it was a Something Strength podcast, and it was a British host, if my memory serves me right. But um, you were talking about um, the evolutionary element of the um you know the the two-legged human versus our ancestors i believe in evolution so i think that you know there was a progression this is my personal belief um so talk to me about that what factors from being all fours to standing upright have contributed to the challenges that sometimes that we see today hey i got one right here too these are great models actually they're made by a wonderful friend of mine in canada called jerome fryer called dynamic dynamic disc designs so these are cadaver models now the beauty about it is we are the only primate on earth that actually has this curvature in our spine that thing called the lumbar lordosis so all our friends who are other primates such as chimpanzees they don't have that shaped spine i actually do a bit of um i'm doing a wonderful bit of work with a fellow rudy sorano down in uh, miami who's a zookeeper and he looks after the primates and we're doing a little thing on how primates walk and how humans walk the whole evolution of this spine took about, we'll call it four and a half to five million years for the first evidence of the fossil change where the spine was accommodating to upright stance. 
So from about, say, four and a half, five million years ago to 400,000 years ago, there's about, you know, we'll say four million, four and a half million years of change for a spine that made you and me an apex predator. And our apex predator depended upon the fact that this person walked and ran. Now, if you're going to walk and run, you've got to have a spine that can actually do that. And it's got to have a particular shape to it. And even the pelvis itself has to have a particular shape and the hip joints in there. So all these things develop together to enable us to walk and run consistently over long periods of time. So we have a beautiful... Now, if you want to say Adam and Eve was there, that's fine by me because either way, guess what? That was a spine that he gave Adam and Eve, right? And he didn't give it to the other apes who are supposed to be on all fours for most of their work. You can stand them up, but they don't do it really well for very long. So the human spine has a particular purpose, and that is to be able to walk and run but the load aspects of it are important too. And that's where Matt winning would come in quite well. Um, you put excessive loads on this for excessive decades and it does have an impact. Yeah, there are impacts about that. Stuart McGill will talk about how the spine actually gets a little bit thicker at the end plates. That means nutrition decreases. So discs themselves don't have a blood supply. They don't have a nerve supply, except for the very, very outside. So if you don't have a blood supply, how the hell do you heal? Well, that changes things quite dramatically because realistically, you only get your nutrients through the end of the bone coming through in diffusion. Now, guess what? The mechanism by which we get our disc nutrition happens to be walking. It's what we call cyclic um, loading. So it's, all that happens is you do that up and down, up and down as you walk every step, and that happens to increase the loading of your spine in enough fashion that it assists with the healing but it never comes back to its pre-injured state. Now, you want to take up rowing. Rowing is a fantastic sport. It also does cyclical nutrition, but what doesn't it do? Well, guess what? It puts you in that position, flexed. And guess what? Rowers have more injuries than any other Olympic sport. Ah, so there you are, cyclical nutrition, but flexion under load repetitively, and you've now got posterior disc injury. So there is an important relationship to how you load your spine for the various factors. This is a spine that was made to bear a normal human's body weight, not chucking on protective vests, loaded material that suddenly puts, and you talk about the fat guy who's a hundred pound overweight sitting in a lazy boy. Yeah. Well, how much, guess more, how much more weight you're going to be carrying in your um, protective gear. Could be a nice 60 pound almost there. So now you put 60 pound on your body. Although you might be in shape, your work actually demands you're going to be carrying that extra 60. It has a huge impact. Especially once you get injured, it has a huge impact. And now you've not got to rehab that person so they can go back and do it again. That probably means you don't want to teach a, um, a first responder how to break the world record in their powerlifting because that's also taking a cost out of their ability to perform their work because they're doing it outside as well. So it's a lot about load management to the performance of your life. You've got to integrate the two things. Makes sense, doesn't it? No, it does completely. What's interesting as well, when I hurt my back, so I, my straw that broke the camel's back, no pun intended, was lifting a guy my size, so like you know, 170, 180 pounds, had an anxiety attack, which at the time, a lot of people that have those truly feel like they're dying, so he wanted to go to the hospital Loaded him in the hospital just the way the uh, the rescue, the ambulance was parked. Um, 
it was at an angle, so the stretcher wouldn't go in. So I ended up extending my back and, uh, you know, felt a big old snap, ended up completing the the trip to the hospital, getting him out. And then after I was like, yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've been beaten up a lot in my life, but this really hurts. So I've done something bad. So long story short, finally get some uh, an MRI done, um, and I torn three ligaments uh, when I when the who was it looking at the PT was looking at it when he raised one arm, one of the uh, vertebrae would actually rotate, so also not good. Um, but, uh, but what was incredible was um, when I was looking back, and I'll, I'll get to the therapy in a minute and what I did to to heal it. But when I was looking back, I was like, you know, I did. I did a lot of exercise, um, but, you know, pretty diligently. I had a good background. I was lifting, you know, pretty, pretty correctly overall. I was doing yoga and what the hell was it that got wrong? And and as I progressed through, yeah, there were imbalances that I identified. But one of the things that is probably the biggest contributor, apart from the sleep deprivation side, was sitting. Because in the fire service, you think of us being very active, but, you know, we sit for the morning, you know, roll call. We sit to uh you know write our reports for our online training we sit to drive to the call we sit in the back if we're doing the ems side with the patient you know so there's a huge amount of sitting so talk to me about that element you know that you can have an acute injury obviously from an extreme event during a sport but what are you seeing in sedentary and even in athletic populations when it comes to the sitting element and how that affects our muscle imbalances well, there's really two important factors there. If you look at human beings, I've got news for you. Human beings are very predictable and you can figure out what the problem is if you are bright enough to understand there's only three directions human beings move. Forward and backwards, side to side and rotation. There's three directions, three planes of motion, right? You can put them in combinations, but there's only the three pure planes. All right, you've got three pure planes. Now, you've also got three components of your spine structure, essentially in any orthopedic injury, and they are the passive elements. That's your disc, your bone. They're the things you can't contract. You've got your active elements. They're the muscles that will attach onto the bones. They're the things you can contract. And then you've got your nervous system. That's basically your software here, put it all together. So the solution three directions of motion, three components of the system to understand. It's really not that hard. They should teach that in first year at university. Unfortunately, they don't put it all together for people. So the mechanism of sitting down is passive. You sit down and you relax into flexion. That causes, if you imagine, there's your disc material that is relatively hydrated, a fair bit of fluid. I'll put that little spine over here so it doesn't fall. And here's the gross model that says if you put flexion under load consistently and that load can be used sitting in posterior pelvic tilt and then you go to pick up your pen that you just dropped at roll call, welcome to your disc. Because you've reached its capacity through some load and your upper body is enough load to do that. As it bends forward, there's your upper body shear force on your spine. And if you've been working consistently and you haven't been, you've been trying to rest, but you've been resting, resting in sitting positions, the load might not have to be significant to create that last bit of injury. So the spine itself is a very well evolved structure for walking and running upright, but it's not evolved for modern society ergonomic positions. That's why you got hurt. It's not the spine's fault. It's basically the evolution of modern society that's the problem. 
So this is where we can have impact. Now, if you've got a person whose disc may be a little bit compromised, the disc material has been forced backwards, what can you do to help it out? Well, perhaps if you put your hands on your hips and bend backwards 10 times, put the load back there, guess what that's going to do to the disc material? It's going to send it back towards the center. So then when you bend over, mm, you've now given yourself a huger capacity for loading. And it doesn't take very much to do that if you're consistent. There are some conditions I don't overly recommend that with, but the most common ones are going to be your disc bulges with a relatively normal spine who doesn't walk enough and doesn't bend backwards occasionally, which we our ancestors would have done. So we know that the forces you place upon that disc are very important. MRI study shot, you actually do it under, under scans. You can see you put a body into sideways flexion and you find that the disc material moves to the opposite side. So we know it's predictable. There essentially is one of the important parts. That's your passive system. You've just taught your body how to put body weight into a position that changes the passive material. And that is a huge way to prevent low back injuries and even treat low back injuries. All right, now once you've got an incompetent structure there, you're now your passive structure is injured, you better get some muscles to make up for it. So that's the concept behind the core stability. And you know how smart Professor Stuart McGill is? Well, he's giving you the bird, the basic big three, right? But geez, come on. McGill's written nearly 300 research papers. The big three is not everything he ever did. This is your basics. This is where you may start. And he might not start you there. He's going to evaluate you. Now, what do the big three do? Well, they brace your abs up. Mm, that's control of forward-backward motion. Then he puts you into a side plank. Mm, control of side-to-side motion. Then he puts you into a bird dog. Oh, you've got control of rotation. They aren't just made up. They're actually addressing three planes of human motion to stabilize the initial injury. Now, you may do them forever, but they're not the only thing you do forever. I can give you what we would call suitcase walks. I can put a weight in your, on one hand and make you walk very perfectly. And guess what? You're suddenly going to stabilize your core into the frontal plane. Mm. And what muscle might do that? Well, your glutes might help with that too. Oh, and the glutes extend the hip as well. So now you've figured out how to address the frontal plane, but you're also getting sagittal plane. You combine anatomy to the planes of motion, to the three active, to the three elements of injury, active, passive, neurological, and you've now got yourself building a bespoke tailored suit, just like out of the best tailors out of Savile Row for a back injury. And all it takes is the understanding of the planes of motion and the components of injury, and then you look at the ergonomics of the individual, put it together, and I'll um, take you back to the Olympics if you need it, or the police and fire games. Well, this is what's so amazing that I found in you know, my personal journey, and I think more people need to hear that, that when you have a, an injury, it's not a death sentence. And it's, it really breaks my heart when I hear firefighters, especially young ones, that you know, have some sort of injury and then they're under the knife, you know, oh, I'm, I'm better now, you know, it's like, you're not better. Everyone I know has had back injury and you know, there may be exceptions to the rule, but a lot of people I know that have had surgery immediately, there's another surgery and another surgery, and another surgery. I was very fortunate enough having the background that I did to really advocate for my own health 
tell them I didn't want the drugs and the surgeries and, and went down the chiropractic route, the PT route. And on that journey, I came across foundation training. I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Dr. Eric Goodman. But, um, oh, yes. Yeah. So, and then that was the, that was another piece in the jigsaw puzzle, Cairo. I mean, all these little pieces. But once I understood that, as you just said, if I build that strength of you know, that column of muscle around my spine and alleviate the pressure on, on the nerves and then address, you know, the, the issues with my glutes and my hamstrings that were causing that anterior pelvic tilt, that not only would I overcome the pain that I was going through, but actually fix the underlying issue, which is what happened. I mean, I went back to work after five months and then competed in a, just like a fundraiser, a firefighter fundraiser, but there was deadlifts and some other things in there and felt amazing and lifted you know, as much, if not more than I've ever lifted pre-injury. So I think this is the kind of hope that people need to hear that just because you have an injury, and it was a bad injury. I mean, I was laid out for weeks and weeks and weeks, but surgery isn't the only option if you can figure out how to rebuild it if that's applicable to your injury that you can have those herniated discs and live a, an incredible life oh gosh yeah um a fellow i work with a neurosurgeon called david johnson in brisbane runs the college of functional movement clinicians now dave's a neurosurgeon who sends his patients to his crossfit gym to learn how to move correctly rather than perform surgery as a first option now, what are the statistics on surgery and good outcomes? Well, if you've had a fusion, you've got a 50% chance that you'll have to have another one about five years later, that there will be more back injury. Now, why did that happen? Well, mainly because the rehabilitation failed. It wasn't the surgery. The surgery was probably damn good, but your rehabilitation was really basically useless. Why? Because no one addressed the reason you got injured in the first place. Your initial injury is entirely predictable. Now, the work of a rehab specialist should be, why did you get injured the first time? I'm not here just to fix you now, make you feel better, because realistically, if you look at the stats on that, and we can take those statistics, 90% of all people who have one lower back injury have a second episode at least. That's a 90% recurrence rate. So getting someone better really isn't um, such a big achievement because 80% of people are better in four weeks anyway, or feel better. And realistic resolution of about 90% of people is over eight weeks. That's a human body healing. You had nothing to do with it. Don't take credit for it. That's your body does natural healing. But prevent the ongoing injuries that associate to it. So the same statistics we can look at there is, yep, you heard it once, you'll heard it again, about 90% chance of the time. And if you have surgery, you've got a 50% chance you'll need something else done in about five years. That's because no one's addressing the cause in the medical system appropriately. And movements... Positions, postures can all be influencing what happens to that initial surgery. We'll fix that. There's Ronnie Coleman. What, 27 surgeries now? Yeah, well, watch Ronnie every time he goes back in the gym. He's still doing the same very terrible movements. That of course, it's going to get hurt again. I don't know who, who is not advising him well, or perhaps he doesn't hear it. But I do see it and look at it and go, well, that's predictable. You're just flexing your spine under load again. No wonder the screw's broke. How about we actually treat it like it should have been from day one? So I do believe, yeah, I can look at the, you know, when I look at the, the groups and populations from military to law enforcement, you know, I can look at the paratroopers who come in who have got spondylolysis, they've got spinal fractures that they've been dealing with for years and years, but they're not being taught how to move correctly, how to load correctly and how to heal. They're just being sent out and someone says, Oh, go do Pilates. It's good for your back. Really? What? Laying on your back on a, 
on a bed that goes backwards and forwards is going to help your spine recover? Mm, not really, mate. It's not going to take you back to what you have to do. And it's like you did. Yeah, when you hurt your, hurt your back, what did you do? You finished the mission, right? You finished the task. And that's essentially what happens with a lot of first responders. It's funny, my daughter's um, competed in jiu-jitsu over a decade at least now. And in one comp, she was lying on her back and she, had, um, she was points ahead. And she looked at me as I was standing there coaching and she goes, I just broke my toe. And I said to her, yeah, well, you've got 30 seconds to go on your head and it's not going to break any worse. So you know, <laughs> stick it out. Did she win? And that was it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> she wins lots. Yeah, so she's a, she competes in the world championships quite often. Wow. A good little a good little fighter. But she joined the police force as well. And, um, yeah, now she's doing um, the nine. She wants to be a paramedic now, so that's her next plan. It's an amazing, amazing profession. It really is. I mean, the firefighting side is, is incredible. And when we get the exciting fires and extrications, you know, you're so glad that you do that job. But if we swallow our pride and get past the kind of, you know, heroic facade that is a firefighter, in all honesty, most of the actual lifesaving is done in the medical side. And so a paramedic, once they get given a patient, she will save so many lives. It may not be right at the brink of death, but sometimes it's just simple compassion too. She'll have patients that are homeless that maybe are found themselves into sex work in desperate parts of town and maybe her compassion will be the words that you know make them turn a corner so it's amazing the kind of spectrum of skills that you have to have and it's a beautiful profession it is a great thing and unfortunately i think for a lot of the first responders in the military is mm, once you're on the injured list you're not being viewed as a very um valuable human quite a lot of the time so i can look at one of the uh, firefighter i worked with who suffered a significant injury extricating a person using the jaws of life in a major truck crash. Now, he was in a really unusual position with a significant load using these things, cutting someone out for about two hours. Now, he gets a huge disc aggravation out of that and a huge injury. Now, it's career changing for him. It's career ending. And they try to fight him at the insurance level about him returning back to the gym. Well, he was lucky to have the support that he has me and he had somebody else who wrote medical reports that said, you know what, you're allowed to, you're actually allowed to deadlift and go to the gym in recovery. And this is important. And we had to write letters to tell the doctors that, yeah, the insurance doctors didn't want him doing that. Well, we got him through and, well, his career has been fine ever since outside of fire now because he felt the support didn't support him once he'd been out. And that's a big part of it. The support once you leave your realistically your your family one of my best friends had a really bad injury he was an olympic um paddler so it was the the kind of surf ski the, the two-man surf ski um high high level and you know great firefighter and had a couple of back injuries he had the fusions i think and um was just terrified to do any kind of real PT because he was worried that people were watching him and following him and they'd call bullshit on his you know ultimate medical retirement and it's such a backward system because yeah. you want people to heal. And that psychological fear, like, oh, I can't do too much. What if they see me is such bullshit. Like your ability to function as a human being is not the same as your ability to be a firefighter where you throw on 100 pounds worth of gear and maybe climb, you know, 30, 40 stories and then go to work. That's a total different level that you have to operate at. But we should not have an environment where our responders are so scared to rehab that they actually make it even worse for themselves. 
Yes, that's so important. We, and that's support an injured individual really needs. They need to have someone on their side and they don't need their so-called employer fighting against them, that perception that they're not being helped. Yeah, there's so much to that. So, yes, there's a huge component of the support system to enable a person to rehabilitate because weight training for a lot of people is their mental release. That's the thing they need to be able to function well is to actually go to the gym and do their time. Now, talk to me about the posterior chain or, you know, the, the muscles in the back of the body. I, I worked with them. Um, I've worked. I, I went and trained once with Julian Pano, the guy behind StrongFit. And it was, again, another really eye-opening, completely non-academic um, experience. And I realized, again, the, the kind of backstory of my injury that, you know, I did have this anterior pelvic tilt. When we did uh, overhead yoke carries, you could see my hips kicked out to one side, just like you were talking about. So the suitcase carry on the weak side was the, the remedy for that. But then when you understand that and you look at the average person, you know, with the pronation at the hips and, you know, the uh, again, the, the, the excessive arch in their back, it seems to be everywhere at the moment. So and then when you look at CrossFit, and this is where Julian first kind of got into it. A lot of us, and I did CrossFit for 16 years, a lot of it is explosive, so we're not developing that strict motion that's activating our glutes and our hamstrings and you know the, the rear delts that are creating that you know strong posture. So what are you seeing in society in general as far as imbalances from whether it's sitting, whether it's incorrect lifting that are also contributing to injuries, including the spine? Well, we can go back to your evolutionary spine, can't we? That's... <laughs> what was it supposed to do? It's supposed to be, it's supposed to have a curvature in it. That's important. But most people are spending their times out of that position. Now, you mentioned the lumbar spine lordosis with the anterior pelvic tilt. In fact, you're pretty well, you're pretty much one of the rare ones. That's not common. There was a, an error a long time ago, and I think it was Creasy and Robertson wrote an article on T Nation about um, Neanderthal no more. And they were indicating that people sat in posterior, in anterior pelvic tilt. Bullshit they do. You sit in that chair right now. You're in posterior pelvic tilt. You're slumped. I am. That's that posture. Slump. You're not sitting in anterior pelvic tilt. That's dead wrong. So that just shows you people who can write articles. And it influences a lot of people. And it probably actually came from a chiropractor previously, I believe. So there was this theory that you were sitting in anterior pelvic tilt when you sat. Well, that's rubbish. You don't. You sit in posterior pelvic tilt. About 99.9% of people will. So, of course, sitting in posterior pelvic tilt, then you go and do a, a nice butt wink in the gym, and you do that repetitively under load, and, of course, there's your L5-S1 posterior disc bulge. So realistically is the biomechanics of the tissues being exposed to load, usually in a posterior position. So if you're in anterior pelvic tilt, and you've got a lumbar lordosis, guess what? It's probably not creating a disc bulge on you. In fact, I've never seen anyone get a disc bulge from that posture. Basically, it can't happen anyway. But you'll get a stress fracture out of it. And why are your back muscles tight? Well, perhaps they're the ones that are working. What's not working? Well, most guys over 40 have got no ass, And they can't hold a front plank for 30 seconds to save their life but their back muscles are having to do all the work. So when people come and see me, it's such a common thing. I've got a bad back. Mm, no, you don't. In fact, you've got a really good back. You've got a back that's working so damn hard to make up for all the things that aren't working. You don't have a bad back. You've got a damn good back, but you've got no ass. 
and you basically can't even do a squat. And if I lay you on your back on the ground, you can't get up off the ground without looking like a tortoise that's on its back in the midday sun. You can't move like a human being is supposed to move. You've got no abs to get you up off the ground and you've got no ass to extend your hip. So no wonder your back is annoyed. It's working overtime. It's fatigued. It's the thing that's not recovering. How about we help it out? Get hip extension strength, get abdominal strength, and you're probably going to be immediately better. And then we're going to do that every day for the rest of your life. Because when you feel better, it doesn't mean that you've healed. It just means you don't feel a problem. And of course, if you go back to your previous things, well, it's going to happen again, probably more than likely. So when we institute a rehabilitation program, I would say my first instance and a person who comes to see me, I might give them a series of things to do that I've analyzed and I'll look at them and I'll grab them by the ears and say, you do this twice a day for the rest for the next three months. There's no negotiation. This is twice a day. Then it's once a day for the rest of your life. When do you get to stop? And they look and they go, never. Good, you got the message, all right. Exactly it. I don't care if you feel better tomorrow. It will take three months for you to learn the movement patterns unconsciously. It takes about 10,000 repetitions, we often say, to learn a movement. So I don't care if you feel good tomorrow. That doesn't mean it's over. I care enough that, hey, yeah, I knew what I was doing, so now you feel better. But you're going to do it every day for the next three months. And there's no discussion. It's twice a day. Then you get to be able to do it once a day for eternity. And if you go to the gym, it's probably that's when you do it before you start lifting. And those people do not come and see me for problems ever again. They might ring up on the phone five years later and said, I've hurt my back, but I haven't been doing your exercises. Can you um, tell me what they were again? And I laugh and we laugh and I send them the exercises. <laughs> they don't need to come back in. So, yeah, all you got to do is correct that human body back to what it was essentially structurally intended to perform. And that means get yourself some ass and some abs back. And you will find that your back will appreciate the help. It's not a whole lot more complex realistically to get you to the first level of success. If you want to continue on with other tasks, then we progress to that as well. So you can come in with, like Brian Carroll, a significant, huge disc extrusion, fractured spine, but you're going to end up breaking the world record about 10 years later. You can do it, but you have to adhere to all the work in between. You don't get a day off. I am as guilty as the next man when it comes to pain being the teacher. And now I'll say I'm not, I wasn't in pain and I'm doing, doing it now. So I'm walking the walk. But what I did is, you know, after that horrendous injury where I couldn't pick up my son, couldn't put up my, put on my shoes. I mean, just absolutely humbling was diligent. But then I got to the point where I felt good and it didn't hurt. And I stopped doing some of the things and then had a, a tweak lifting a sandbag and then kind of went back into it again. But it's, you know, it is that that roller coaster and, and it's trying to forge that discipline that it's as, you know, as repetitious as brushing my teeth, you know, and, and I'm on that again now. What would you say to the people out there that have got out of pain, but are unaware of the fact that they are just on a countdown back to injury again? You will need to see a very, very competent individual who can assess you and set up a protocol that you need to do for the rest of your life. How many of those individuals are there in the world? Not very many. <laughs> so that's a tough one. Uh, you know, unfortunately, social media is a huge information source for a lot of people, and social media doesn't have fact checkers for anything but politics. So when it comes to science, you can say anything you want. 
Hey, you can go out there and say the earth is flat, right? No fact checker is going to stop that. No fact checker is going to say it doesn't matter how you squat. Of course it does. But people are going to post out there and say it doesn't. So unfortunately, social media is the last place you're realistically going to be able to understand how to find the right information. So, yep, contacting me is a good one, but I teach professionals now more than I actually treat patients. So my work is in education. So I'll be, you know, in the US from September, probably through to November-ish. Um, this time, mostly up the East Coast, but I'll end in LA and San Diego for a little time. So, yeah, there are professionals I've taught and who I believe are competent in knowing what to do in quite a few states. Uh, worldwide, yeah, I've taught around the world. I'm off to Paris in about a month's time to work with someone over there. Yeah, I've taught in England, Europe, Asia, Middle East. There's people out there who I know have a clue. But how do you find them? That's a tough one. Well, I want to go back to your youth again for, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, to kind of hear your journey into the injury. Um, but before we do that, it's really interesting coming from the UK to America. And, and I've told this story many times, but I'll just you know, kind of keep it short. When I first moved over here, I was blown away by how many people, how many deconditioned people had a, I could have, should have, would have been story. I call it Uncle Rico story, um, you know, where they were going to be in the major leagues, in the NBA, in the NFL, had it not been for shoulder, knee, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, fast forward another couple of decades, I have my own children um, and, you know, one of which is uh, a track runner at the moment. And I start seeing, you know, from from a parenting point of view and you hear again, my fellow firefighters, the kids are playing travel ball and they're pitching camps and strength and conditioning camps and all these things. And I realized that in the UK, there was longevity in sport. We didn't play at a high level, most of us, unless you were an amazing football player. So, but when we left school, you would see pub leagues and, and people would keep playing football, like into their 50s and 60s. What I saw in the US was this elite level of performance in high schools and colleges, and then a massive drop off in the general population after. So, what has been your observation with all these different kind of perspectives that you have coming from Australia, working with elite athletes, and being a youth athlete yourself? Realistically, the only difference between the athlete and the regular person is the loading and volume of work that you have to do to pursue that. But technique always matters. Technique matters. Whether you're going to go unload the dishwasher or whether you're going to pick up your sandbag or your kid or you're going to go squat at the gym today because it's CrossFit, you know. The movement patterns themselves are essentially human movements that you should be taught to do well. So, yeah, the same thing. In the US, you're encouraged to be a high performer, and if you're not a high performer, then you tend not to be able to pursue things outside of that. We could probably say to some extent that CrossFit was useful to help change that a bit because people who weren't going to go to the gym went to CrossFit. Now, that's a gym, but no one realised it. And then, of course, after you go to CrossFit, now... Of course, you're going to get people who go to the CrossFit Games approach. But there's a lot of good movement patterns for people who just wanted to move well. Unfortunately, I don't think the coaching was that great in the early stages or the programming, but it certainly has improved a lot that I've seen. 
So you get people who went to CrossFit trying to do max out deadlifts to see what your max max deadlift was or how many repetitions you could survive. Not a really great healthy idea. But that seems to have changed a little bit better. So you found people who started to move better in the US, I think it was as well, who were doing more active participation who weren't elites. But that hasn't always been there. It's sort of been, oh, well, you didn't make it. Enjoy watching it on TV. It's changing a lot more now. People are more aware of moving more. But once again, the education system is not established to make truths evident to everybody. And I don't think it ever will be. So I have no belief that a universal truth that may be already established is ever going to take over the minds of people who have mindsets otherwise. Don't think you're going to change the world when you find the right answer because other people are invested in other things. There are practitioners out there who will show you your x-rays and they'll sit you in the room and come back five minutes later making sure you're obsessed over the x-rays and they'll tell you how bad they are. And if you give them $10,000, they get 10% off for the next 100 treatments to make sure you come back for your treatment twice a week. Yeah, there's business models out there. Now, they're being sold all the time by professionals. You're not going to change that. And I don't get upset about the fact that you can't change essentially what is a human social construct. All we can do is help the ones who come to us and we try and help professionals get better educated. But we're not going to change the world. We're just going to help those who need, who want to be changed and are prepared to learn. What about the youth athlete themselves? Where I'm seeing a dangerous area, mm. and this is you know maybe a little bit more retrospectively, is mm. a lot of these children are they're, they're squeezing the performance out them, but it's at the detriment of their wellness and longevity post high school or college. And it's not going to stop. Get ready. That's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to get a kid whose parents are looking at making a high-performance athlete. They're not going to back it off because it's competitive out there. And when you're a kid, you're incredibly resilient. You don't find, say, professional football players in their 40s very often, do you? Mm. Well, you've your tissue does change. Your collagen gets stiffer. So you're not going to perform that same sport very well later compared to when you were younger. And so when you're younger and you're performing really well, no one's going to tell you very well to back off. Now, you might find some intelligent coaches, but it's not going to actually change the system because parents are going to want their kid performing well and making it to the pros. And then we'll deal with the consequences after. And as a kid, you're feeling good. It's hard to coach outstanding movement. And look at it this way. When I was playing baseball, there's no way I would have thrown under 100 balls a night. Not a chance. There's no way I would have taken under 100 swings a night. That would have been just, you know, getting happy. You're going to play for the next six or eight hours with your friends. So, yeah, your capacity for recovery is huge at that point. And you're learning great motor skills. They're the things that will take you forwards. So if we were able to introduce good movement patterns to people, in high school gyms, as in, this is the way that you lift. Ah, all right, we're going to correct that squat. We're going to correct that deadlift. So that person then transitions after high school to be able to safely train without injury later. Most of the big injured guys who I've met will all say the same thing. I wish I had learned this in high school. 
Well, then you're going to run into the academics who will tell you that the research says there's no evidence. So now you've got medicine actually working against teaching people how to move well because you're going to get dickheads who sit in chairs in academic places publishing their own research who don't treat human beings very often, they don't have a record of success, who are going to set the standards to which you're going to go into education because these are the academics. That's the problem with what, what we currently face. You don't have clinicians who deal with great people who are setting the rules. And I don't see a way that that can change. Things are moving too fast. Academics aren't going to step out of their chairs and universities aren't going to suddenly be funded by governments, except in some countries. And that's where I've noticed that if I look at um, some of the Eastern countries like China, Japan, mm, I'm seeing better research come out of there medically than I do in the, in the West. There seems to be a bit of a better scientific support coming out of those countries for pure science. Another common denominator, I've had you know, nine, almost 900 episodes now. It seems like the young athletes that were multi-sport athletes seem to foster a higher level of performance and longevity, lower injuries than the ones that were just specializing. Oh, for sure. Specialization makes you really good at one thing, and that's what you get paid to do. You know, someone's going to be at the Super Bowl coming up. They're a punter. Guess what they do? That's it. They're specialists. You know, this is what performance is about. You know, it might be your basketball center. That's what they do really well. You got your baseball reliever comes in in, you know, ninth innings. That's what he does. So, yeah, we get paid for specialization. That's for sure. And as a firefighter, guess what? You get paid for specialization as well. And as a military person, you get paid for specialization as well. So these are the natural ways to which pathways will tend to take you. Don't come to me for a hand injury, okay? I'm not a specialist in that area. Give me a spine, give me a back, you'll be okay. So yeah, our specialties are the things that pursue us forwards. Most of the time we actually enjoy what we do too. So it tends to make us move in that direction. What's interesting about the fire service is that we are specialists, obviously, and we, we have certain moves. But like you said, it could be ascending, you know, with 100 pounds of gear on our back. It could be climbing inside a minivan trying to cut someone free from the steering wheel. So our planes of movement are completely unpredictable. Unpredictable and loaded. In a way that the human spine was never expecting to load consistently for a career. That human body was made to run and hunt prey and bring it back to the group for a period of time. And basically, you could probably say 60, 70 years a good spine would last. Well, now you're going to put 100, 100 pound on that body, which didn't evolve to have a 100 pounder body, because essentially, one of the important parts about human evolution is calorie efficiency. So when you bend forward to pick something up off the ground, like your sock or your pen, your lumbar spine muscles that actually sit in here turn off when you head to the bottom. You use elastic recoil of the tissues. Your body learns to use less calories to perform tasks. Well, that was a survival mechanism when calories weren't available. Now, you do that with a significant load, and that's not the expectation that you do that repeatedly. So we do put our bodies into obtuse and unusual positions, which we should be able to do, but you're not supposed to do a lot over a long period of time. And that's where it is. We're incredibly resilient. We can really do a hell of a lot before we get to the injury. And that's why you tend to see those peak injury years tend to be in that 
20s, 30s, 40s. And the good news is, as you get older, you just get stiffer, but you actually statistically will have less pain. But you just don't move as well. That's because, realistically, the spine gets a bit stiffer. And the muscles and the, the ligaments, especially the collagen, that's to get stiffer. So that stiffness becomes part of reality. Well, you don't get stiff junior athletes. They're very flexible, very collagenous. They have a different body to an older athlete. Now, it doesn't mean that a person's going to be hurting more when they're stiff. But we do need to make people move well in those early years and translating into their adulthood. And that'll translate to a better older age. So we can really teach great movement patterns that people have never been taught. And that's why I like about Matt Winning. If you look at him working with his fire departments, his statistics on insurance um, claims, they've gone, they've dropped off the, off the cliff. He's saving the insurance companies millions, but he's working his fire departments with really brilliant work. Often doesn't even have them lift a weight for six months. They have to learn and earn the right to actually have a weight. Yeah, that's huge. Teach movement patterns without load before you load them. Yeah. Well, I love Matt's philosophy because he's building the strength of his firefighters. And it's interesting hearing all these different kind of, you know, ways of training us. And, you know, a lot of them are, are phenomenal. I, I personally love the strongman stuff, the, the sleds and the sandbags kind of mimic advancing hose, dragging people, carrying equipment, et cetera, et cetera. But when you listen to Matt talking about, you know, the strength, it makes perfect sense because if we are going to have endurance, muscular endurance, our raw strength is a big part of that. And being a smaller firefighter, as far as I'm, not, I'm tall, but I'm slim, it was always a strength component that I had to chase. I had the motor, but I had to have that, you know, increase my strength so that, as you said, the jaws of life, for example, weren't, you know, crushing me, you know, one minute into an extrication. So here we are, almost 900 episodes down on your podcast. Have you ever had a professional come on who has experience who says, it doesn't matter how you move, just lift? Ever had anyone say that yet? Not a single person, thank God. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of academics out there who sit in academic chairs who you can invite and they'll tell you that. They don't deal with human beings. They're just making money out of the academic world and they're influencing the professionals who are now graduating who are going to say that same rubbish. So you're dealing with people who have established reputations for success and they all say the same thing. Guess what? Movement matters. How you move matters. How you transfer it to your task matters. Every one of us. But your poor graduating student who's coming out of university now will tell you the opposite because that's what their universities are teaching them. It's, and go to social media and those kids who graduated yesterday and some of them even having graduated are trying to shit on great clinicians like Professor Stuart McGill saying he's wrong because their academics say that it doesn't matter. That's the problem that we have is that the information that's coming through to our current professionals is full of rubbish. They're not looking at the professionals who have great successes. You wouldn't hear Stuart McGill's name in Australia at a university. No way they're going to mention him, even though he's got 300 research papers and he's probably the most competent biomechanist on the planet. Ah, uh, yeah, you're going to have your internet trolls who are going to say he doesn't know what he's talking about in dead pig spines. Yeah, well, guess what? The dead pig spine study shows exactly the same mechanism of injury. And guess what? It shows flexion and load relationships. So, in fact, he didn't show anything different. Yeah, it's a very unfortunate thing. You're getting a lot of people out there who learn how to say words like, ah, straw man argument. Ah, uh, you're making a logical fallacy. Well, fuck yeah. How's that going to help your patient? 
You can sit there and dribble on social media, but you sure as hell can't treat a patient. I think another thing that I've noticed is, you know, who who trusts that practitioner with their their own body. So, for example, foundation training, you had Lance Armstrong, you had Kelly Slater, you had Laird Hamilton, you had all these elite performers that had tried it and used it. And these are people that have obviously spent their lives investing in their health and diving into the the education and you know all the work so that's kind of one thing that i look like who trusts this person and i i guarantee you if you look at the academic side you're probably not going to find elite performers you know adding their name to their work no you'll find none i often say that who tell me who you've who you've actually done anything with i'll be interested well it's always crickets when you say tell me who i got probably four People I would have spoken to this week who who have squatted or will squat four hundred kilograms. Yeah, it's not me. That's performance. <laughs> <laughs> I'll help you. We'll just put another hundred. We'll just put another two hundred pound on you. Yeah, first. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want to get to shoulders as well, but just before we do, the tactical mm. profession. You mentioned the reverse hyper. Why not for all people? Mm. Here's the beauty of it. Thank you, Professor McGill, because you taught me this many years ago. I actually think I first read his papers in 1996, first met him in 2015. All right, so here's the spine. We've basically got two things to consider, all right? Compression load. And then we have shear forces. Shear force means, I'll get my little Chinese model out again. All right. Person bends forward and the upper body weight has a tendency to do that. That's anterior shear other direction posterior shear so you've got compression anterior shear posterior shear and they're the physical effects of muscle contraction you have a person who has a disc bulge and when you put them on the reverse hyper the posterior muscles here pull you into posterior shear now for somebody posterior shear is stabilizing it helps you stabilize. You're the person who loves the reverse hyper. But the person who posterior shear from your lumbar muscles that will pull backwards, that may aggravate somebody. And that's because they're posterior shear intolerant. Now, that person's not going to appreciate the reverse hyper. That person, you may have to, you have to begin to find what muscles can you use to create the stability and tightness around the spine that then allows them to tolerate posterior shear. So I would have a person, for example, lay on the ground, lift up both your legs. How does that feel? That hurts. All right, brace your abs. Ready, we're going to do a front plank, 30 seconds. Now I want you to brace your abs, lift your legs off the ground. Does that hurt? No, it doesn't. Good, all I just proved was that basically a normal posterior shear pull aggravates you. But now I've taught your abs to help um, stabilize you and posterior shear now is part of the okay team. And now I'm starting to construct you a rehab program. I've just based around the fact that you needed some abs to work. And now I'm going to test your glutes and I can do the same thing. So we can look at basically that's where the reverse hyper comes in. And it came from the great Louis Simmons, who's had years and years of back injuries. And he basically did a reverse hyper and started getting better. Well, was it a reverse hyper or fixed him or was it about time he got better? That's also in there. So there's a lot of concepts behind it. Every exercise you can evaluate, does that reproduce your problem? Does that produce this? Okay, do this exercise. Let's do it again. Oh, that feels better. Great. Now we know what we're doing. 
Human beings are easy. Forward, backward, side to side, rotation, know the muscles that perform them. One one movement hurts. Okay, let's do these muscles. Test it again. Oh, it doesn't hurt now. Change this movement pattern. Oh, that feels good. Great. Now we've got your program starting up. Twice a day, every day for the rest of your life, or for three months, once a day for the rest of your life, and then we'll add more on top of it. It's not that hard. Absolutely not. Well, moving up the body then. So now we're at the shoulders. When I oh, yes. look at, again, my slight anterior carriage, I think about all the years sitting, all the years working in front, and I didn't grow up in a generation that had devices in their hands all the time. Obviously, my son's era does now, so you've got that. And then, again, in CrossFit, when I'm looking at you know the way that we kip the pull-ups and you know there's no real strict barbell rows or anything, we're not doing a lot of posterior work on the upper body either. So there's a couple of contributing factors. Never had an injury specifically, had impingement, but kind of working now to, to kind of rectify that. Talk to me about oh, well, what I'll, you're seeing. I'll, I'll fix it for you now. Let's do it. I'll fix that for you now. Please. <laughs> That's pretty freaking easy. All right. Once again, pretty freaking easy, all right? Now, here's here's the typical shoulder problem. I got pain here. Let me find a finger, right? There we go. Front of the shoulder. That's where most people are going to tell me their pain is, right? That's the most common one you're going to get. What sits under there? Your bicep tendon. You know, you walk in, the physical therapist or whatever, dry needles, massages, things don't get better, um, sends you off for a scan, presses, oh, he presses on there and says, yeah, that hurts, that's your bicep tendon. Scan comes back, you got biceps tendinopathy, go off, see the sports physician, ultrasound-guided cortisone injection, mm, may make you feel better. Well, guess what? It's not your freaking bicep tendon that's a problem. The bicep tendon referral spot comes from a muscle behind the shoulder called the infraspinatus. Now, out of your neck, around about the C5, the fifth nerve root, comes down, contributes to some nerve areas there, and it splits basically in half. Half goes down the front. And that's your musculocutaneous nerve. There's one that goes over the back called the suprascapular nerve. Now, infraspinatus is supplied by suprascapular nerve. So if a competent professional happens to test the trigger point there and you've got a person with um, enough chronic history, they'll probably go, I'm feeling that right in the front right now, and the person's pushing behind you. And that's simply what that's called referred pain. I prefer to call it misconstructed. The brain is not getting the location correct. Now, that's not uncommon. You can have a person who has pain in their calf muscle from sciatica. Well, yeah, you've got a disc injury that's basically you know, three feet away from it. So the location is not really, really good, is it? The brain doesn't always give you location very well, and that's why a lot of physicians are crap because they don't realise that and they don't think about that. So this pain at the front of the shoulder will be due to infraspinatus distress. What's the most common exercise you're going to get somebody given? Hmm, external rotation. Well, that's great. You've just told a marathon runner to go for another run. The poor thing's fatigued as hell anyway, and now you're going to give it more fatigue. What's the solution? Why is infraspinatus pissed off? Because as you start to get there, your postural position is your shoulders are forward. That means your rhomboids and scapular retractors are basically not doing their job. So now your pec minor's tight in the front here. Oh, yeah, that's tight. Great. You're tight here. You've got shoulder pain here, but your solution happens to be your shoulder blades connection to your spine. Now, that means twice a day, every day, you're going to do the scapular stabilizing and strengthening exercises for your rhomboids. Not only that, but I'm going to combine that with a postural move that makes you put your hands by your side and externally rotate your palms outwards. You do that, guess what happens to your shoulder blades? They retract. 
So there's external rotation combined with scapular retraction. And now I can put you under a bench press and I'm going to show you how to use that technique with your lats to put a load on you and you suddenly stand up and go, I haven't been out of bench press for five years. Now I've got no pain. What the hell? Yeah, well, sometimes I can get that done in an hour with a person because you correct the motor pattern, you put things... Deactivation actually exists. Activation is a shortened term for post-activation performance enhancement, PAPE. That's a principle of physiology. All muscles are influenced by their previous contractions. So when you do an activation movement, which could be, for example, with your glutes, we might do a particular glute movement. I'm going to give you 50 reps. And then I put you into a squat position with a band around your knees so that you're then transferring the activation to the task. And then I take the band off your knees and I make you squat. And now suddenly you don't have knee pain. All we just did was activation, insert into performance, performance. Ah, same thing McGill shows with firefighters learning how to deadlift. Great exercise. But now how's it transfer to task? Show the task. So shoulder rehab, yeah, spectacularly misunderstood. And I guess so many people who see so many eminent professionals who will diagnose them with things that have got nothing to do with their problem. They may have those other problems, but they're not the reason they're coming to see them. So shoulders, the biggest thing, like you said, is postural. Everyone's sitting here, protracted shoulders. Well, what's the answer to protracted shoulders? How about you retract them? Shit, what a, how simple is this? <laughs> but don't worry, the evidence doesn't show that. The data doesn't say it. Yeah, dude. Seriously, you've read the evidence? You need to know what the evidence says. So I read a wonderful thing that said activation of um, you know, your shoulder work with um, doesn't change the shoulder thing. Yeah, when you read the methods in that particular study that came out, it was once a week for about four weeks with a therapist. So you mean you're doing it once a week? Well, that's what doesn't work. It's not that you didn't do it. It's your volume's wrong. It's amazing. I mean, there's studies out there that show cigarettes are good for you and fast food. You know what I mean? There's the, if, if the right person is funding a study, they can prove anything to be true. <laughs> well, let's say nicotine is not a bad drug. <laughs> <laughs> right. Nicotine actually works very well for um, preventing quite some neurological disorders. It's actually very interesting. Used with um, modafinil, it actually appears to have a correction of MDMA damage in the brain. How's that? Interesting. Nicotine is nicotine itself is not the evil. And I've got to say, it's so funny that pretty much I haven't met a military person who didn't walk in, who didn't have some form of basically like a um, nicotine salt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a dip. And you know what? A lot of them have to perform, and it does assist with performance of the brain. Yeah. So there is that relationship. Yeah. Wait. So, yeah, smoking's bad for you, but maybe nicotine isn't. No, I've heard that. I mean, I've had the you know, military um, sleep experts and other people on, and, and it's exactly that. I mean, it's a nicotine pill they're giving. They're not they're not chewing tobacco. They're not smoking tobacco. But yeah, I mean, as a stimulant, it's, it's definitely one of the ones that they seem to approve. Yeah, and there's a lot more of it I've seen used in sports performance lately. Uh, it seems to be. I mean, Andrew Huberman, who's uh, obviously uh, runs his podcast, seen him advocate it. Um, Tucker Carlson, there's another fellow who uses these nicotine salts as well. So, yeah, there it is. Smoking's bad for you. Yep, but maybe nicotine isn't. But don't worry, we'll just stick it all together because it's too hard to figure out. i got to say, the military guys who come in, like, you know, I've used the three milligram nicotine salts. These guys are coming in with 28 and 40 milligram ones. 
the tolerances are spectacular. Yes, absolutely. Well, again, sleep deprived, you know, group that we uh, we work with. Mm. I want to say just one thing with the, with the shoulders before we progress. I want to talk about body dysmorphia quickly. Um, one of the, I forget, I think it was Eric Goodman that showed me this, but they said to relax your shoulders and then, you know, do basically a forward bend. And then he said, just like you just told us, you know, pull your shoulders back, activate your, your lats, and then try and round your back and, and you can't. Oh, beautiful. So I didn't realize how important, again, that shoulder stability was, especially on a deadlift in maintaining, you know, the structure of the spine when we're lifting. Yeah, I just had one of my athletes who came and saw me, a great fellow I've known for a while, and um, he was getting ready for a comp and he tore his lat on a 400 kilo deadlift. He said that was the most painful experience he'd had and he's been through a lot of experiences. And I could see why he tore it. He had little lat engagement in that lift. The weight was above where he should have been. And instead of being able to set his back well with his lats, he let them go. And there he's got, you know, 400 kilograms and there's your lat tear. So it is a very important thing. Now, what's, what happens when a baby first is born? What's the first movement that it starts to really work with? Mm, turns the head. Now, if you put a baby on its front, what's the first movement that happens? The head lifts. What does the head lift do? Turns on your spinal musculature. So, yeah, you can't slump your back when you lift your head. And there's that relationship that Eric's showing you. It's a, If you put your body in certain positions, muscles activate with the expectation of stability. And that's as, that's as basic a primitive movement as you're going to get. So, yeah, the body follows the head, doesn't it? So where are the eyes looking? That's fairly good direction. That That's where your body's going to also think about going. So there, Eric's showing you that this movement combines beautifully to scapular control. And then you lift. You're going to be okay. Now, the beauty about this, if you do a lot of great technique work, what happens when you hit a max weight? Your technique will possibly break down, as you'll see in Olympic weightlifters. Yeah, but you build such a capacity for it that it doesn't matter because you're only doing that rarely. Don't do shit technique for a long period of time and then go to your max because that's where it pays out. The best lifters all have great technique and maybe it will fail that top weight. But here's an interesting one. The top 10 squats in human history, as far as absolute weight go, have a look at how they move. There is zero knee movement across the frontal plane. They are dead set. You can't move a weight at absolute, at absolute limits, 400 kilos plus, without perfect position. You will not get away with doing this. You'll get the way with doing that if you're a, a female who's setting the world record in a deadlift or a squat, in a squat, for example, but you've got 200 kilograms. Yeah, it's not 400. Everything relates to absolute load. And that's what a lot of people who don't understand the science behind it. Oh, look, this person does that. This one does this. Yeah, but what's the absolutes do? 100% perfection. So you see absolute technical evidence at absolute weight. That was the humbling thing about being in CrossFit because I ended up coaching, and I agree with you completely. We were woefully ill-equipped early on in the CrossFit years, you know, and I I didn't specifically do CrossFit coaching that much. I, I kind of loved the strongman stuff just from, from a tactical athlete point of view, so that's where I ended up kind of focusing on. But you'd watch an Olympic lifter doing a snatch, and then you'd watch, you know, your regular Joes doing a snatch, 
and unable to unable to do an overhead squat with x amount and then expecting to be able to snatch it and it's like we're, we're missing the point you know and you watch these incredible athletes that spend hours and hours and hours doing these movements that's why they can catch that weight so i think as crossfit kind of uh matured i think there, there was a lot of humility that needed to take place and then we started getting you know chad vaughn and some of these incredible um experts in each of these fields coming in and doing more workshops and then the coaches that really were ingrained in crossfit really started to flourish and understand what they were teaching but yeah it, it was it wasn't ill intention but we jumped into a you know a range of modalities that was so varied from gymnastics to olympic lifting to you know to all the things um that you know that, that was why people were getting hurt because we really as coaches just weren't equipped to look at the human how they moved approach them and tell them that they had to pump the brakes and you know give them a pvc pipe for example and then just like like you're saying with matt give them an on-ramp where they have earned the right to even lift a weight. Well, so beautiful, isn't it? Earn the right. We'll have to translate that into Latin and just put it somewhere. Huh? <laughs> and then I get a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> but there it is. Yeah, earn the right. So the challenge we have is professionals in our fields, medical fields, are not educated very well to individuals who have injuries from realistically extreme occupations such as military and first responder. It's, and you've got to find a professional who has experience with those individuals and an experience that means bringing them back to excellence. And there's some good ones out there. That's the thing about it. It's just tough when you're in an area where you don't have a lot of support. Absolutely. Well, I've heard you talk about proprioception a lot. One of the things I love to do, I'm not out running marathons barefoot or anything, but I try and be out of shoes as much as I can. I try and lift um, you know, barefoot as much as I can. I just feel like I'm more connected with the floor. I feel like my body is more aware of you know, where everything is. What is your perspective? I know it's more than just barefoot. What is your perspective of getting out of shoes as much as you can? For the right... Let us put everything in context. Everything's right for the right person to some extent. So there are people who need to squat with heels. There are need to people who should squat with bare feet. There's a lot of things that are related to the assessment to know who's who because their particular hip sockets, lever lengths, muscle mass, various things contribute to it. But the concept of proprioception, which was a term that was coined in 1906 by Lord Sherrington, who won a Nobel Prize in regard to the physiology of the nervous system. Essentially, that was one of the big things. Oh, where's my little model? I've got a good model. There's another model. Let's take one. All right. In uh, spinal research, for example, we tend to talk about three muscles. We talk about the thoracic extenders, superficial. They're called iliocostalis and longissimus. Iliocostalis and longissimus actually have lumbar components. So there's two of those. And then there's a third one underneath called multifidus that attaches to the spinous processes, right? There's actually a fourth muscle that gets ignored in research in regard to spinal rehab. And that's because it's not big enough to produce force. And that's this little fellow there called, that one's gonna be your intertransversari muscle. They sit between them and then you've also got another one in here in between there called the interspinale muscle. Those muscles have a high lot of what we say are muscle spindles. That means their job is to tell your body its position in space. People who have had low back injury have a disturbance of knowing where their body is in space. 
your dry needling is not going to fix that. Your stretching is not going to fix that. Your massage isn't going to fix that. Proprioceptive rehab does. How do you start proprioceptive rehab? Here's a good test for people. I like this one. All right, a nice test we did, I, I did this in a, a workshop with some professors a few years ago. I said, everyone stand up, put your hands on your hips and bend backwards once. Now, tell me how that feels and how far you went. Remember it. Now, stand on your right foot, shut your eyes for 30 seconds. Then we went to the left foot, shut your eyes, 30 seconds. Did that twice. Re-examine your backward bend. And pretty much universally, everyone went zip so much further. All right, so what happened? Why does standing on one foot suddenly improve your lumbar spine movement? Proprioception. Your body's ability to give you movement because it knew where it is in space. Now, this is me working as a clinician, figuring things out because I'm working with weight trainers and I'm teaching them how to work with unstable weights to enhance their proprioception. But on a normal human being, proprioception is actually important to rehab as well. So your gen pop person still needs to rehab their proprioception. It's an imperative. It's that third part of the triad. Passive system, active system, neurological rehab. Big missing component. Realistically, I think Vladimir Yander back in about 1964 was talking about it. Everyone else forgot about it because he was Czechoslovakian and most people didn't read his work. It's all there. It's all in, it's all in science, but it's not within the last five years, so you're not allowed to read it if you're at university. Is that one of the components that factors in to the psychological element of rehabbing an injury because what I've seen within myself first and then you know with with people is even though structurally they may have rehabbed to the point where they are safe to do those movements that fear almost creates instability mm, fear probably prevents them from challenging their stability doesn't really create the instability it probably stops from going there uh, so I did some work with a, um, a very famous individual recently. It was quite an amusing one. He's a martial artist, teaches a lot, wonderful fella. And um, he said, uh, this is, I asked him, what, what can't you do? So show me, tell me. He says, well, I can't do this particular movement where I've got to get off the ground with a gun in my hand and control an opponent. And he said, it's, it's integral. That's what I teach. He said, I can't do it. Uh, and I said, okay, shut your eyes. I want you to do it in your head. Can you do it? Go through it now. And then he just opened his eyes and said, I can't imagine it. I can't think of doing it. And they just said, shit, exactly. There's that sudden, if you can't do it in your head, you aren't going to do it physically. So then all we do is we supply the exercises. So I did the activation work with him in the various areas where he was weak. And then I made him get on the ground. And I didn't give him 10 seconds. I just, as soon as the last exercise was down, on the ground now, get up, go. And... It was it. It was like, okay, just go. And he just stood up and goes, shit, just did it. Yeah, we just broke the barrier because I didn't give him time to overthink it. All I did was show him re just basically activated, strengthened, but then put him into a neurological pattern that he's done a million times. So his body knew the neurology, but his brain wasn't given the time to cognitively say, oh, don't know about this. No, nah, it was performed now, immediate performance. So he broke the barrier immediately with that point, and that's it. Now he's up off the ground, no problem. Then I can make him think about it and he can do it. So we often do that. We have to say, I'll say that to a patient, can you close your eyes and do what I'm asking? And they go, damn, I can't actually do it in my head. Yeah, that's right. So we had to actually make sure that you can 
consciously do it. Yeah, this, um, I'm not a psychologist. All I'm doing there is using some neuroscience. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it's, it's a, an important tool for some of us that, you know, maybe you've had an incident that got us hurt on the fire ground, and maybe there's a, a fear of doing that. It's just to to visualize climbing the ladder again or going into the confined space or whatever it was that, that um, you know, caused us a mental or physical injury prior um, seems like an, an interesting tool to, to try. Oh, definitely. When I was playing, you know, I was in baseball, um, we, were, we were taught we had to do mental rehearsal for all our tasks. So it was analyze, visualize, center, and execute. That was, that was, it was AVSEX. Analyze the task, center on the task, analyze, visualize, center on the task, execute in your head. That's how you had to practice. So you practice that performance in your head before you came to training. And that was a, sort of like a 10-minute requirement for everyone on the team. It needs to be there in occupations as well. 100%. I want to throw one more thing at you before I go to some closing questions. You mentioned body dysmorphia. I don't know if I'm... I have a skewed perspective, but I grew up and we grew up when, you know, the bodybuilding world really exploded. And then it kind of tapered off a little bit. There was more of the CrossFit thing. Our action heroes weren't bodybuilders anymore. They were, you know, arguably more CrossFit style physiques or even less than that. But I feel like there's horrifying. (laughs) But I feel like there's been a resurgence now of that entire area. And what worries me is um, we're seeing a lot of very young kids that I'm assuming are on TRT because there's no other way that they would suddenly be able to balloon and, and look the way that they did that we knew everyone was on back in the 80s. So talk to me about your observations of body dysmorphia, your own journey, and then if you're seeing any kind of resurgence at the moment. Mm, yeah, well, social media is going to make it obvious. That's the, that's the thing about it. It may have been out there. But, of course, now it becomes more available and then it becomes you're seeing it all the time. So then people are going to find answers to their body dysmorphia a lot quicker. So all I did was eat a lot of food and get real fat. You know, that was me. Um, I got to 300 pounds with just eating three dozen eggs a day and, you know, a a couple of pints of milk a day every day for five years. So, yeah, I didn't need drugs, man. I had to eat. And also, to become a really champion athlete takes a certain sort of mindset. And the guy who ran one of our, I used to train with a couple of top pro bodybuilders back in um, the early days of the pros. And the coach used to say to me, you'll never be a good bodybuilder, you're too smart. Which means I overthought the tasks way too much. And there was that element of that too. Was, yeah, you know what, I just noticed some of the best athletes, they don't overthink it, they do it. So, yeah, with body dysmorphia, I got trapped into it. And seriously, it's taken me forever to even try and handle. So I just converted to a a positive. So I took up powerlifting. Yeah, that was it. Great. So I just took the body dysmorphia and made it a gift. Now, what does it do? It made me learn about how to apply my profession to people who lifted weights. So body dysmorphia was the best gift I ever had. It made me learn about the tasks I was undertaking because I wanted to get bigger, I wanted to load better, so I had to learn how to move better. So the science of weight training was actually would never come to me if I stayed baseball, but I had to learn how to be bigger and stronger. So body dysmorphia turned me into the professional I am today. I know everything about spines due to body dysmorphia because it made me learn anatomy. Then I had injury and I needed answers to injury. So 
I always say embrace your gift. Look at what it gives you. Now, with the kids there, yeah, unfortunately, they haven't got to that stage yet. And seriously, there's a reason that, you know, certain, but you can't drink in the US until you're 21. Well, there's a fairly good reason because your basic ability to understand and integrate reality isn't very well set until about that age, if at all. So you're going to get kids who are hitting the gym at 16. Of course, how are you going to change them? Well, chances are they're not going to listen to you that much anyway, except for the bright ones. The ones who are heading for goals are going to do what those goals are. Now, if we've got a big population, is it really more body dysmorphia that exists or really are we just seeing more of it put onto the screens? It's a hard call, but I understand it. I probably would have gone the same route if I'd been born now, which was I'll do whatever it takes to get there. Hey, I want to be a winner. That's what I did. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I really don't think it's going to change. I don't think you can sit down in front of a classroom of kids and say, by the way, this stuff should be used maybe later when you've reached a certain level of ability. They're going to look at each other and go, where can I get it? Where do you think the root cause of your body dysmorphia was? No idea. I used to love, you know, when it came to my aspirations, baseball was it. Then for some reason, I physically I saw that Arnold Schwarzenegger magazine and thought, yeah, that's how you're supposed to look. Now, why the hell did I look at that and think that that's how you're supposed to look? No idea at all. I used to watch boxing when, with my grandfather when I was probably five and six years old, took up boxing myself, enjoyed it immensely. Um, probably there was an element of seeing performance athletes in gyms, and I always enjoyed the heavyweights. So, you know, didn't matter, Ali, Frazier, things like that, imposing human beings. Hey, I wanted to be an imposing human being. Why did I want to do that? Why didn't I want to eat, drink a soy latte and, you know, write poetry? I don't know. It wasn't me. You know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but it wasn't going to be me. Uh, I liked the things that have a little bit more, yeah, aspects of the alpha probably mindset. It's from some of the people I've had on that found themselves going that way, um, especially more than just the, the bodybuilding side, there was an element of uh, building an armor around them. There was a kind of frightened child. And I mean that in a, in a compassionate way, deep inside. And there was this projection of masculinity that some, you know, maintained to this day and others then stepped away from and then became elite soldiers or whatever it was. But it was an interesting, when you think about that, the women, you know, the body dysmorphia ends up being losing weight, but we forget that men struggle. And some of us, if we've been hurt when we're young, some of us choose then to create this muscular armor. Ah, uh, you got you got me figured this one out. I've never actually took it there, but now you just explained it. I have no insecurities whatsoever. You have never met a person with less freaking toxic life no one who's probably could have had a, a better upbringing. Ah, what happened to me? I think it was very, very young. I remember there was a um, there was a movie and there was a song called The Impossible Dream. The movie was The Man of La Mancha. And there was this particular moment in the movie where he sings a song called The Impossible Dream. And it basically says that, um, let's go to it. Then the world will be better for this, that one man scorned and covered with scars still strove with his last ounce of courage to reach the unreachable star. And this is my quest, to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far. To fight for the right without question or pause, 
to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. That was my inspiration. I was supposed to become big and strong and be good. So I was actually that end of the thing where I had to fulfill my destiny and my destiny and potential requires that I become the best I can be. I'm not doing it for, uh, I'm scared. Oh no, shit, I'm doing it because there's, there are people who are scared. So yeah, I got the super, I got the superhero approach. Funny thing, Mike um, De La Parva down at the Battle Axe Gym. So he's a Colombian fellow and we caught up in Miami last year. He's got the, the word courage tattooed on his head. And here we are smoking cigars in the cigar lounge and suddenly we both realised that the thing that had got us both in our lives was this particular song. That's why he has the tattoo. He's got the same thing and we both sang the damn song in the cigar lounge. We had it and it's the funniest thing. We both are driven in our quest to be the best that we can be only because we feel we we would be disrespectful to our potential if we didn't try and reach our potential. And we're not expected to reach our potential. It's impossible to be that good. But it is not right that you don't try and reach your potential. That's us. So, yeah, you got me. Now you figured it out. <laughs> I didn't see it from there. Yeah, I'm glad I asked that question. That was a hell of a, an answer. Well, I want to be yeah. mindful of your time. So let me, let me ask you the first of the closing questions. Is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Well, it depends. If you want a book that's probably going to take you somewhere, you've got to read Hamlet by Shakespeare. I got you now because essentially what's going to happen is you probably look at it and go, how the hell, what? Yeah, but I want you to read it, then I want you to try and find out how to understand it. Probably the most important book on the development of a human being. But take your time. It is worth taking your time, reading it, going back, rereading it. Read the, criti the critics who write about it. Understand what this story, what this book is really about. So, yeah, get ready. It's not easy. It's not a little golden book. You're going to have to do some work. But, yeah, I would say Hamlet is an imperative to understanding the human condition and what's behind it. That's a great one. Um, then the book I've read the most would be Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. Now, why? Because it's authentically different. It was a way of writing and a way of, we'll call it journalism, but it was about a change in the way that you approach things. And then there's one of the greatest um, paragraphs I think that's ever been written as well, where he describes the end of the 1960s and the aspirations that were related to it and the failure of it. Yeah, that's a good book. Yeah, watch the movie, but read the book a couple of times. Very inspirational. Didn't go into the drug culture myself because of that. No, it was more, ah, I can see we got something here that you're trying to understand, and it was authentic. Yeah, they're my, they're, that would be my two obvious go-tos because the bookshelves are full of books. Yeah, and I'd say most of them are Thompson's work or somebody else. Uh, yeah, I could probably say um, you're going to go back, but you probably should listen to The Ascent of Man by a guy called Jacob Bronowski. You're going to have to watch the videos because they were shot on video. I think it must be 1980s. But either way, a very good logical discussion about the development of humanity. And there was a guy called Kenneth Clark who did one called Civilization. They, they remade them. Oh, they haven't remade those two. They remade Cosmos with Carl Sagan. But, yeah, Brunowski, fantastic presentation. Well worth if you can find a way to download that one. And Clark on Civilization. Mm. Very thoughtful human beings. Brilliant. And what about films and documentaries? Mm. You know, I'm a sucker for any superhero stuff, really, aren't I? 
So, yeah, while everyone else can critically decry them, I want to see Thanos kick somebody's ass. So, yeah, I'm happy to go there. Um, yeah, get Man of La Mancha. Go and watch it. I think it's Peter O'Toole, Man of La Mancha. Get a copy. Watch it and um, feel it. It's a great movie that um, it will take you a good place. Hmm. Dead Man by Johnny Depp's good. It's more fun, though, if you actually understand who William Blake the poet was. That will help a little bit as well. I would put that in one of my top ten movies. And uh, any any Western with Bud Spencer and Terence Hill is going to do you good. In fact, there's a there's a one that hardly anyone's going to know of called My Name is Nobody with Terence Hill and Henry Fonda. And it's a story about a gunfighter who wants to retire and he wants to disappear. And this stranger turns up who won't let him disappear because he said, you're too much of a legend. You've got to go out in a gunfight. You can't disappear. And the whole thing's about not letting him disappear. And the guy's name in it, nobody. Great movie to watch, especially the final part, when nobody faces down the famous gunslinger in the middle of the street because you can't let him go without a gunfight. Mm, get a hold of that one. My name is nobody. My name is nobody. Brilliant. Mm. All right. Well, then, speaking of names, the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Mike De La Parva at the Battle Axe Gym. He um, is a very interesting human being with a fine degree in social work, I think, um, from, shit, it could be Stanford. He's a pretty bright guy. Uh, he runs the Battle Axe Gym, and he is a great mental hygienist. His work is about mental hygiene with, well, he does a lot of actually first responders, and he does a lot of high-performance athletes. He's been a, he's been a, in the kickboxing ring. He's done strongman. He's done powerlifting. His journey never ends either. He's always about feeling, feeling potential, but he is brilliant about the things you want to know about in regard to mental hygiene. Get Mike on. I will. That would be fantastic. He said he was here in Florida too? He's down in Miami. Okay. Absolutely. Perfect. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and your work. What do you do to mm. decompress? Podcast with you. <laughs> <laughs> I never decompress, mate. I Seriously, I'm up till 1 o'clock in the morning working on writing courses. Um, I get up 7.30 in the morning, um, grab coffee and... I go to the gym. Oh, that's what I do. I remember I don't, I don't, I don't negotiate on that. We go to the gym every day. So that's that's my zen. Put on the headphones, train for an hour or two. I don't need more than that. My daughter's growing up. She doesn't need me looking after her, so she can look after herself. Uh, my dear girl Julie, she's pretty smart. She looks after herself pretty well. We're a good team. So now I just go back into what I love, which is fulfilling my potential intellectually. I better find the answers and I better teach professionals how to find those answers. That is my quest to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far. Beautiful. Well, speaking of your work then, so where can people find you online and social media? <clears throat> social media is pretty easy. Um, just Andrew underscore lock underscore strength. That's on Instagram. And I work as part of a team with uh, Julie and Danny in a thing called United Health Education. So we put out courses to educate professionals on movement. And I've got a Lumbar Spine Leadership Academy, which is a 12-month course 
to teach anybody who's in the health and fitness industry in one year what took me 30 years to figure out. So I put together a 12 module course that will take you from your planes of movement through the, all the anatomy, all the movements, and at the end of it, you learn how to squat and deadlift as well if you've got a high performance athlete or firm person. We do all the proprioception, we do the how the passive structures work, the active structures work, and um, that's a 12 month sign up. So enjoy that one. Or you can just download the book if you want, if you're a cheap ass and you just want the book and you want the lectures and the exercise library and you're smart, you get a lot out of that. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank you so much. It's been an incredible conversation. We've gone all over the place from, you know, the, the mental side and body dysmorphia through to, you know, back and shoulder rehab and everything in between. So I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Oh, James, thanks for inviting me. Hopefully I can contribute to helping somebody out there in their quest. <laughs>